You need to open your Bible to Psalm chapter 3. If you use your phone, we do use the YouVersion app, and there's a live event on there you can follow along with. But we love your eyes to get on a page, red Bibles around you, whatever it takes for you to look at Psalm chapter 3 with us today, and we want your eyes there. All right, before we begin, a couple of things. Uh, First of all, you know, I was talking with someone this week, and one of the blessings of this facility is that we have a a facility. I, I mean, I just think back two years ago, we were, or at this point, crammed in the church office next door, and, uh, and six months before that, we were still uh, at Prairie View School, where we'd been for 10 years, and it's just such a blessing to have this facility. One of the drawbacks to this is we're at the end of a strip mall that no one knows is here, and so uh, it, it's interesting. People will tell me all the time, wait a minute, there's that church across from the Y? Where is that? And they, they just don't know we're here. And, uh, and I've, as I've had discussions with this. The most effective way for people to know about our church, because, I mean, really, this church is really something special, you guys. It's really a blessing. And uh, to me, to all of us, as we're a family together, and the greatest way to do that is when it comes up naturally in conversation, say to people, you ought to come with me some Sunday morning and, and bring people and invite them with you. And sometimes it's like, we feel like we're salesmen or something, and, and that's not true. Just God brings up opportunities in conversation for you to invite someone with you, and you should. You should say, oh, that was a prompting of the Holy Spirit. I should listen to that. And then just, and if they say no, oh well, right? No skin off your back. But it's just being obedient and listening. And, and that's the most effective way to tell people so that we can continue to be a, a growing family immersed in the Word of God. And so I really want to just encourage you in that way. And then I also want to remind you, as Doug mentioned before, that our Beza team is overseas. Uh, I do have two daughters on the team, so I have an extra interest in what's going on. Uh, It took them about 48 hours to get from Des Moines to Ethiopia, including a 17-hour flight from New York to Addis Ababa. And so they are there. Uh, They are on the ground. I had a chance to talk to uh, all three of our team members, and in particular, uh, my daughters. And um, they're just really enjoying getting to know these uh, young women and young men who the young men have been brought out of uh, out of uh, sweatshops and and really slave trade in essence. And then uh, a lot of these young women have been rescued from child prostitution. And one of the young women that they got to interact with, she's 14 years old, and 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 they've rescued you her out of that as a 13 year old, and she's been in in their uh, care for a year now. Uh, and it's just incredible how God is using this ministry to liberate people from the, the chains of death and sin and Satan. And so I'm so excited. So please keep praying for them. They'll be gone till next, they'll, they'll be, be home next Sunday evening, a week from today. And I appreciate your prayers in that regard. On that note, before we dive into Psalm 3, let's just pray for our team that's over there together as a family. Heavenly Father, we uh, lift up Brianna. And we lift up Anna, and we lift up Kaylin to you. And we lift up the other three women that are on their team, those from other churches that have joined them. God, we ask that you would not merely keep them safe because we understand that the safest place to be is in the center of your will. But God, we ask that you would use them mightily for this, the kingdom of God. Would you not only use our team members, but would you challenge them and change them and make them more like Christ? And then the work they're doing is they're interacting and and training up some of these uh, children. God, would you use that mightily for your kingdom? 
And so we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We ask that you would use them for your kingdom. And now as we turn to Psalm chapter 3, Lord, I pray that my words would accurately reflect what you desire for our family today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm chapter 3, we're in our third week. Last week, Ben Segabart was here from Indianola, the church down there. It's been 12 years since I was a pastor down in Indianola, so for me to go back there last week was just a joy. I loved interacting with people and, and loved uh, and having that uh, connection with people. Some of them I haven't seen for 12 years, so it was really, really fun for me, and I, I thank you for allowing us to do that pulpit exchange for a week. But uh, we're back, and we're continuing on in Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 1 and 2, as I mentioned, are introductory psalms to the whole book. And Psalm 3 is really the first uh, psalm proper in the book of Psalms, of the 150 psalms. We get a lot of firsts in Psalm chapter 3. And sometimes there are things and truths that we read in the Bible that just sort of blow our mind. There are truths in general in life where we go along life thinking we know something and thinking we're heading the right direction or think we know how to process truth. And then something happens that just blows our mind. I have a couple examples here. So for instance, as a Cubs fan, uh, I, I went most of my life knowing a team of losers that never really did anything. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, oh, I got to get this thing to work here. Out of nowhere, we see uh, the Cubs won the World Series. I don't know how to exist in a world where the Cubs have won the World Series. It just blows my mind, right? Or how about this? I loved Coca-Cola, and in 1985, Coke changed to New Coke. Some of you remember this catastrophe. They had the most successful formula for soda worldwide, and they decided to change it. Um, blew my mind. I didn't know what to do with that, right? Or how about this? For most of my life, well, there we go. Is this even working, Ben? I don't even know. All right, most of my life, this was a planet. Pluto was a planet. And then they decommissioned it from planet status. I don't even know what to do with that. It just, oh. All right, it changes our perception of reality. Now, these are just silly things, but there's a few verses in the Bible that do this on a more serious level. We think that we have our Christian faith boiled down to be a nice person. We think we have it boiled down to this. But there's once in a while that we come across passages of Scripture that blow our perception of what it means to follow God. And there's a, there's a verse like this here in Psalm chapter 3. I'm going to throw this verse up here for you, um, but it's in your text as well. Verse 7, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Well, that's not very nice. I mean, what do we do with this verse? I mean, and it, it seems to fly in the face of things that Jesus taught, like this one here. In Matthew 5, 44, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, how does striking your enemy on the jaw flesh out with that? And how about this one? Romans 12, Paul says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Well, I, I don't understand all this stuff. The Psalms are filled with things like this. I, I want you to just take a glimpse of Psalm 139 for a second. Psalm 139 does this. You, you know this song. Let me just read you stretches from it here. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Oh, it's so nice, isn't it? You read that, right? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? It's so reassuring. He's there. 
You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts. This is so nice. I, mean, I don't know how many funerals I've heard this read at. How, how many just different public. We like this. Except what happens when we get to verse 19. Everyone skips it. They don't know what to do with it. Verse 19. If only you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak evil intent. I hate those who hate you. I abhor those who rise up against you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. We, we, we like skip it. We don't know what to do with it. What do we do with this stuff in the Psalms where the psalmist says things that just kind of blow our mind? So back to this verse for a second here from Psalm 3. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Let's be completely transparent for a second, okay? I mean, let's just honest with ourselves. Who in this room hasn't wanted God to just clock your enemy in the jaw? Who, who can't relate to this? Who hasn't wanted God to just strike him down? Maybe someone who took you to court unjustly. Maybe a relative did something to hurt you. Maybe a business deal went bad. Maybe it's a lady who got into your position that you wanted at work. Someone who hurt you. I mean, as a Christ follower, should you pray for bad things to happen to them? Is this okay to pray this? All right, so we're, we're in this series, Summer Psalms, and Psalms I reminded you the, uh, two weeks ago when I was talking about this. Essentially, you can boil them down into two categories. Psal- Psalms of praise. It's a piece of poetry that speaks praise to God. But then also Psalms of lament. That's the next big category. Things aren't going so well, God, and I'm going to let you know about it and, t- and talk to you about it. This today is in a category called personal lament. Uh, 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 the psalmist has a personal lament, a situation that he is bringing before God. In, in Psalms, we have 150 Psalms. Half of them, are just under, were written by King David. Uh, the rest cover a period of 800 years. And at, and at some point, this book was made into a collection Five books of psalms. Somebody took all the different psalms and collected them into 150 and split them into five different books with Psalm 1 and 2 serving as an introduction to the whole thing. And it's really interesting because if you're reading in order, I think as intended, you come across Psalm 1 and it's a really nice psalm. It's blessed. You're blessed if you meditate on the Word of God. Oh, I want to be blessed. That sounds good. And Psalm 2, you're blessed if you follow the Messiah, and we looked at two weeks ago how that's Jesus. And so, okay, you're blessed. All right, I, I like this. But Psalm 3 takes a turn because life is hard. In, in Psalm 2, King David was promised the nations. But by Psalm 3, he's on the run for his life. What I want you to know today, and the thing that I tell you every week, I want you to remember one thing. I want you to remember this. When there is no way out, remember God is faithful and pray for deliverance. When there's no way out, remember God is faithful and pray for deliverance. In Psalms, we often have headings that are helpful for us to understand context in which the psalm was written. And we have one here in Psalm chapter 3. Right before verse 1, we see Psalm 3, a psalm of King David, when he fled from his son 
Absalom. So right away, let me give you some context of this story of him fleeing from his son Absalom. Um, In ancient Israel, remember uh, I talked two weeks ago, David was promised this kingdom of God. He was the the second king of a united Israel. He brought it all together. He took over from King Saul when King Saul died. Um, And he established Jerusalem as a holy city. David had lots of children. He went through this whole mess with Bathsheba. You know, he he basically took this woman who was married into his chamber. He got her pregnant. He killed her husband. I mean, it was bad. And one of the consequences, the natural consequences of this, was Absalom, his son. And so Absalom, his son, one day is hanging out uh, uh, and, and beginning to orchestrate a coup against his father to overthrow his father. And, and by the time we get to Psalm 3, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but David is on the run from his very own son. He takes his whole household because Absalom, he, David realized that all the, the power of the, the people is with his son and not with him. And he realizes that his life's at risk. So he packs up his entire family, which is huge for a royal family. There's a lot of members of his household. This would include servants and, and people loyal to him, his personal guard, things like that. He packs them all up. They exit Jerusalem. And the scripture says they go down the Kidron Valley and then right next to Jerusalem, they, you go back up to the Mount of Olives. And as they cross, cross the Mount of Olives, they sort of turn around and, and look at the city, the beloved city of Jerusalem that they're leaving. And they're just openly weeping. Everyone is crying. They're, uh, they, I mean, they're, they're, they're ousted. They're on the run. They're running for their lives. The, this is the context in which David writes Psalm 3. Everyone is running for their lives. When there's no way out, remember God's faithfulness and pray for deliverance. We're going to build this phrase, build, build this sentence from the text one phrase at a time. And this will serve as our outline for today. And so the first phrase in, the, in that phrase represents verses 1 and 2. The first thing you need to know today is that when there's no way out. When there's no way out. Maybe you've found yourself in a position like that, that there's just no, you found that there's no way out. Well, look at, look at Psalm 3 here, verse 1 and 2. The psalmist says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. There's three words in these two verses that really jump out at us as we read it. The first word is foes. David recognizes that he feels outnumbered and he feels his enemy creeping in on him. The, the word foes, the root word uh, has something to do with something that confines and, restrict, and restricts. Um, imagine, if you would, for this word foes, a giant snake like a boa constrictor that has wrapped itself around a person. Then every time the person wiggles, the, the snake gets tighter, and there's another wiggle, and it constricts more. This is how David feels. This is the imagery he's using in the word foes. The second word here is is the word many. He says in verse 2, many are saying of me, uh, think of rats in the city sewer left unchecked. 
You know, it's, it's like they, they multiply every 30 seconds, it seems like. They just continue to multiply and multiply and multiply. That's the feeling that David has. Not only is he being constricted, but it's like everywhere he turns, there's more enemies, more foes around him. And the last thing that he says is, in word I want to point out here is the word soul. Um, you don't see that in your text, but it, it's verse 2. Many are saying of me, or you could say many are saying of my soul. That's the Hebrew word there. In essence, what he's saying is that his enemies are attacking his character, the essence of who he is. There's an accusation tied in here. Look at David. This promised one of God. God's abandoned him. God will not deliver him. So his enemies not only are all around him and they're, they're, they're creeping in on him and constricting him and they're basically calling into question, well, God's not going to keep his promise to you, David. He's not going to do it. So Second uh, Samuel 2, 16, and 7, uh, 16 verse 7 uh, this is the second part of the story of David running from Absalom. And you can see this here. David's on the run. They cross up over the Mount of Olives. They all weep. They cry. And they're bolting. And it's, you can't take a big household quickly. They're moving slowly. And they cross a town where there's a man there who is a relative, a, a distant relative of the former King Saul. Now you remember King Saul was the first king of Israel and King Saul did not please the Lord. He did not follow God. And God finally removed Saul and David became king. Well, it stands to reason that any relatives of Saul didn't like King David all that much because he took over. They didn't like him. And so as, he's, as David's on the run, th these people that were related to Saul, even distantly, start to go, ha, 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 see? He's going to get his due now. He's going to get what... What, you know, is owed him. And so this guy starts coming up to, to King David as he's got his tail between the legs and on the run, and he starts throwing rocks at David. Now, you can imagine how ridiculous this is as David would be surrounded by his personal guard, and, they, and he starts throwing rocks, and he starts shouting at him, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You, should, you have come to ruin because of this, you man of blood. He's pelting them with stones. And you can imagine his guard. They turn to David and go, hey, uh, you, you want us to just get rid of this guy, you know? We can, we can make quick work of this. David says, no, leave him alone. Leave him alone. Maybe he's right. Whoa. I mean, that, that's a dark place. And David has been flying high on this promise of God. This, God made a covenant with him. And all of a sudden, let the guy say what he needs to say. David feels everyone's against him and there's no way out. And maybe everyone is right. Maybe God is against him. He starts to think. He starts to think, God will not deliver him. What if that's true? You ever felt like that? Will God deliver me? I mean, am I just going to go down to my ruin now? I don't understand how to get out of this mess I'm in. 
I mean, you can relate maybe to David and you feel like everywhere you turn, your enemies are growing and the, the situation gets worse and worse and nothing's getting better, everything's getting worse and there's no way out. Perhaps you're feeling attacked at the core of your being. As our culture moves away from, uh, from a, a Christian under, underpinning, uh, we can feel isolated and detached. Maybe you feel a sense of impending disaster and you don't know what to do. This is what David feels. There's no way out. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And if you feel like this, you're in good company because that's how David feels. And this psalm's for you. But David doesn't stop there in the psalm because he recognizes when there's no way out, we should remember God's faithfulness. Look at verse 3 and 4. So he's just processing this idea that maybe God has abandoned him. Verse 3, But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Um, in the midst of dire circumstances, David holds on to God's faithfulness. He doesn't let go. I love to point out words here that are meaning we may not understand. First word is shield. David says, you're a shield about me. For, for an ancient Jew, for an ancient Israelite, a, a shield would be a small round, a round um, thing made of some kind of probably softer metal, uh, depending on, on the era. But they would hold the shield, and the shield functioned to protect what was in front of you. It, it, this was not a full-body shield like some had in the times. It was just a small, round shield. Now, what's interesting here is that in this small, round shield, he says, you are a shield all around me. So David envisions not just a little round shield in front, but one to the side and one to the back and one up top and one under his feet. What David envisioned, and he didn't know it, was a Star Trek force field. It was a Star Trek force field. This is what, this is what King David uh, uh, saw here. And you, <laughs> wait, I got a picture. Maybe I don't. There it is. Star Trek. I got to get the Cubs and Star Trek in every sermon. There you go. We got it. Uh, I'm, I'm a weird person. I like both of those things. So anyway, so he, he envisions this, the shield of God all around him. He looks at that. The next thing he's, he points out is, is the glory of God. Look at, he says, you bestow glory on me and lift up my head. Now what's interesting here is that as we look at this, honor was a big deal to David, okay? And anyone in his day, a person's glory was tied to his reputation. But David senses that this is all at risk and yet he believes God will bestow glory on him anyway. Why would he believe this? Well, because David is all about God's glory. And because of this Davidic covenant, the promise, David knows that God's glory is tied to his own. He knows that God's glory is tied to his own. He gets this. And so he says, David looks to the past. He sees the promises of God and how God intended to glorify himself through the glory of David. 
You see, David remembers God's promised him. He remembers God's faithfulness. He remembers all the times he was on the run from King Saul, and he remembers how God was faithful to him. Look at verse 4. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. This word, I cry aloud, we have, I have trouble with Hebrew grammar. I, I didn't, when I was in seminary, I didn't love Hebrew. Hebrew is so, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, Greek is so logical. It's just boom, boom, boom. Hebrew is like these big ideas. It's nebulous. And so it's hard for me sometimes to get a, a handle on grammar. Well, what, this word, I cried aloud to the Lord, he says. The idea here in the Greek is that I have been crying over and over and over and over again. I have made it my habit of life to cry out to the Lord. This is what we should do. This is what we should do. In the darkest of times, we remember God's faithfulness. We remember it. I I remember this. It was back in 2011 to 2013, there was a two-year span where Clarissa and I talk about these as some of the more difficult years in our lives. Uh, it was a two-year period of time that was rough. Uh, many of you remember my dad. He, he was suffering of a, a, something called Lewy body disease, and it was growing worse. His dementia was growing. Uh, it was in that time my mom was diagnosed with kidney cancer, and we thought it was a death sentence. Uh, my, my youngest son Malachi was born right all in the midst of this. And Malachi was really sick when he was born. And, and we couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, is my child going to make it? Is he going to live? Ministry was filled with conflicts and challenges and heartache. I was working about 70 hours a week trying to manage all of this. And finally, my dad passed away. And... It just was hard. We had friends abandon us during this time. It, things were, just life was hard. And I look back, and in the darkest of times, just like David wondered, is God, has he abandoned me? Where is he at? And in the darkest, darkest of times, God was faithful. And I can look back now and see how God was taking all of that stuff, all of that evil, and how he was working it for good. When we sing the song Sovereign Over Us, it's a reflection of Genesis 50, 20, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's what God is doing. I look back on 2011 to 2013, and I see God's faithfulness. I see that why my mom lost her kidney, we thought cancer was all over her, and it wasn't. And I I look at Malachi, who was failure to thrive. He was, I mean, I I didn't know if he was going to make it. And and finally, we were able to diagnose him with a rare bacterial infection. They were able to fix it. I mean, I I think of all these times, God is faithful. Ministry, how how our, our church has just grown into this beautiful, wonderful family. And, and I sit back and I think, God, you're so good. And every time I remember or encounter something difficult, I think about how faithful God has been to me. What, what are you going through right now? What's the hard thing in front of you that you feel like there's no way out? Because the key is to remember God's faithfulness. 
We look back on, on this, and, and I mess up all the time. And yet God was there. He didn't spare us from the hardship. He walked us through it. And we make a habit of calling out to the Lord. We make a habit of it because he's been so faithful. When there's no way out, remember God's faithfulness. And then the last point, and pray for deliverance. And pray for deliverance. Look at the verse 5 and 6. The psalmist says, I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the ten thousands drawn up against me on every side. That's probably a little hyperbole, but that's what it feels like. Uh, He says, I love it, verse 5. In the midst of all this, he lies down and sleeps. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. Uh, anyone have trouble sleeping here? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do, right? I, uh, I've gone through periods of life. Right now, I'm waking up at 4.30 every morning. I don't know why. Lay there, and then I usually fall back asleep just about time for my alarm to go off. And so, I mean, I get this. Sometimes I lay awake. I've gone through stretches where I lay awake at night and just stare at the ceiling and going, you know, I got three hours of sleep last night. I should be exhausted, and yet I can't sleep. You know this. And it's usually, for me, something I'm stressing, angst over, worrying about, <laughs> trying to trust God for his faithfulness and, and calling upon him and remembering this. Well, imagine that people are not just, you know, that you go to sleep every night. Imagine that there's an assassin who's probably been assigned to kill you because that is what the reality of David. Not only does he have to worry about an entire army coming on him from every side, but He's going to bed wondering, is someone going to sneak into my tent and kill me while I sleep? If I go to sleep tonight, there's a good chance I won't wake up in the morning. I'm talking about dark place. He says, I lie down and sleep. I awake again. He knows why he wakes up. Because the Lord is protecting him. In all of his doubt, he looks and sees God's faithfulness even in the present. And then... He sleeps. And then verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. Okay, so here we come to this verse. So David calls out to the Lord to save him. So you have to understand the imagery here when he says, strike all my enemies on the jaw. When he says this, break the teeth of the wicked. The idea here is that God is going to slap his enemy, strike his enemy so hard that it knocks out all his teeth. That's what David, this is not just a, you know, give him a girl slap and send him in his way, right? This is a serious deal. Like knock him out so hard that all his teeth get knocked out. Well, if you go back to the story of David and Absalom, here's the interesting thing. This enemy that David is talking about is his own son. Now, David loved his son. In fact, he gives his soldiers orders to treat him carefully, to protect him. It's his son. Even though his son hates him, David can't help but love his son. I think every father can relate to that at some point. Why is he praying this? Why does he want God to strike Absalom on the jaw so hard that his teeth will break? Well, think of it this way. 
If you take a predator and you remove the teeth of a predator, you're basically taking away the force or bite of the predator. God is, in essence, I think David here is saying, God, I really want you to take the teeth, the power away from my son, spare his life, but don't let him hurt me. He wants him to live. A predator without teeth isn't really all that scary. Um, <laughs> my grandma had false teeth. I'll never forget it. Uh, you know, she, she was embarrassed about her false teeth. She didn't like it. My grandma lived till she was 98 years old. And, uh, and, and, you know, she couldn't see or hear anything at the end. But, man, she did not like people knowing she had false teeth. But once in a while, you'd catch her in a mood where, for whatever reason, she had to take her teeth out. And uh, she would just laugh at herself because she realized how ridiculous she looked without teeth. It's hard not to look at her and laugh Any. Any ferociousness that my dear 98-year-old grandmother had was totally removed at that point. And David doesn't want to die. David doesn't want to lose the kingship, but he doesn't want it to be him or Absalom. That's where he's at. He's praying that God would punish Absalom in a way that fundamentally changed the being of who Absalom was. So David prays for deliverance. You so, friends, here's the thing. It's not wrong to pray for your enemies. And it's not wrong to pray against your enemies. But I believe that when we combine this and see this in the light of Jesus, that the best thing to pray for your enemies is that God would fundamentally change them. That they would fundamentally have a change of heart. Because we know that God is sovereign. So it's not wrong to, preach, to pray against evil. What's wrong is to seek retribution on our own. You see, David gets this. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that's why he prays. It's not wrong to pray against your enemies, but we should be praying, God, change, fundamentally change who my enemy is. And if vengeance is going to be extracted, Lord, it's yours to do, not mine. And so we can pray against what's going on in Syria. And we can pray, I mean, I, I don't understand who to even pray against except to pray against Satan. Pray against him. Pray that God would remove his influence there. So we pray about these big things. We pray about Christians all over the world. We pray against those in Ethiopia who, that are enslaving young women and young men. And we pray against them. But part of the prayer is to fundamentally change the essence of who they are. It's not wrong to pray for the person who's dragging you into court or, or for your ex-spouse who's treating you so poorly. But the essence of our prayer is God fundamentally change who they are because they encounter the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit of God transforms their heart. And then we come to verse 8. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Here we see a fundamental change in the psalm. Up to, for the verse seven verses, this has been an individual lament. David crying out to the Lord. But now we see this change in verse eight from individual lament to a corporate hope. You know, the, the word uh, deliverer, deliverance here is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which if you understand Jesus' name, Jesus' name is the Aramaic or Greek equivalent of, of, of Yeshua. <laughs> it's like we can 
easily, quickly see Jesus right here in this psalm. You see, the reality is that when we read the psalm, while we identify with David, what comes to us is that we really are not David in this psalm. We really are Absalom. I mean, because we've all declared rebellion against God. The enemy of all that is good is you and me before Jesus. But when God saves us, he fundamentally changes us. He knocks us in the jaw and knocks out our teeth. We're fundamentally changed. It's a regeneration of the heart. He changes us. And this psalm, once again, screams of the Messiah. Remember I said we should read everything in light of Psalm 1 and 2? They form an interpretive framework. So we are supposed to read this in light of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who takes us Absaloms and changes us. And this is all the hope. The psalm, once again, screams of this. And all of us. It brings this hope to all of us. The blessed life is the delivered life. And so the beauty of the gospel that Jesus, that God himself would come down and become a human being and allow his created to crucify him, that his blood would cover over our sins and in that moment we would have a regenerated, changed heart when we believe in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit changes us. That, that Jesus didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead. His spirit is sent to us. We have God living in us. This is the hope for all of us Absaloms. So I think you can read this psalm either way. You can read yourself as, as an Absalom and thank God for his mercy. You can read this psalm as David, God deliver me. When there's no way out, remember God's faithfulness and pray for deliverance. So what are you going through today? Are you stuck in a no-win position crying out to God for deliverance? Is there someone in your life who you just hate? Pray that God would change their heart and deliver you from their wicked plans. Are things going well? Stop and thank God for his faithfulness. You see, when there's no way out, remember God's faithfulness and pray for deliverance. Uh, I want to close with this story because uh, I think it... it, it Puts all this together well. So uh, you've heard the phrase, don't look in the rearview mirror. What they mean is, in life, quit looking behind you and just press forward. I think that's a patently unbiblical concept. Because the rearview mirror is essential to us for who we are. A, a few months ago, I set out to fix my daughter's car. She had an old car and, uh, and the power door locks weren't working anymore. And I thought, you know, like, well, everybody needs power door locks. So I, I should fix this for her. Heaven forbid she should have to put the key in and turn it. So uh, I got, you know, so I started watching YouTube videos. I, I can do this. So I bought the part off Amazon. It was cheap. And, and, and I started, this was a major project. I had to pull the door shell off and dig in there. I needed like four hands. It didn't work. But I watched this YouTube video over and over and over again because this guy had done it already. And he walked me through step by step. I have to do it. Well, I thought I, I, thought I understood it. I did the whole thing. It took me forever uh, and uh, got it all put back together. Uh, the next day, Kaylin <laughs> calls me from school. She says, uh, Dad, uh, I'm in my car. Uh, I can't get out. <laughs> 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 so, 
I, oh, okay, well, uh, can you crawl over to the passenger side and get out? Yes, I can do that. So she got out to the passenger side. Okay, apparently I didn't look at the video well enough, so I went back and I watched the video again, and I realized that what I did wrong was a 10-cent part at Honda that I didn't want to go buy because I was too lazy to drive over there. So I went and got the 10-cent part, came back, plugged it in, ripped the whole thing apart again, got it fixed, but I watched that video again and again and again. What did I, what did I do? Where did I go wrong? Because I looked at the past to know how to move forward. Friends, today, I don't know whatever you're going through, but you need to know that God is faithful. And if you look at your life and you look back at the YouTube video of your life, you look in the rearview mirror, you're going to see it. With the perspective of time, you're going to see God's faithfulness. And guess what? He's not done being faithful to you. He's not done. And the hardest things, we, when it feels like there's no way out, we remember God's faithfulness. And then we can rightly pray with David, deliver me, oh God. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. You are faithful. And even as we listen to the rain come down and water our grass and bring new life to things, we remember that you do this for us over and over and over and over again. In the hardest times, you've never abandoned us. You're always there. So when there's no way out, God, let us cling to you all the more and pray for deliverance. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.